Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode deals with suicide and drug use, themes which may be triggering for some audience members. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Truth That Heals podcast. Today, I have a special guest. She is a best-selling author, and I just finished reading her book, Kevin's Choice. I would like to introduce you to our guest today, Barbara Legere. Thank you for joining us, Barbara. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. I'm glad to be here. And it is an honor to have you on the show. I have just finished reading your your book, uh, Kevin's Choice. Uh, before we we get started, and you know, getting into the heavy material, can you uh, please tell us something about yourself for the audience? Okay. Um, well, I'm born and raised in California, and I have one child, Kevin. Um, I raised him as a single mom and I started writing a long time ago, but never thought I'd actually write a, a whole book. So I'm pretty excited <laughs> that now I've written two books. Yeah, that's about it. Okay. So you've written two books and they both deal with, uh, grief, Kevin, and what else can the, the readers discover in your book? Um, in Kevin's choice, it's mostly the story of his, you know, the issues that he faced with addiction, mental health, and um, what I went through as a parent, because so many parents and families are going through it today. And unfortunately, we all know what it's like for each other, but other people don't know what it's like for us. So I, I wrote it partly to share about that. And then the book that's coming out actually a month from tomorrow is called Talk to Me, I'm Grieving, and it's about how to support someone in grief. Um, it's for both the griever and the person wanting to support them because we, in our society, we're so uncomfortable around it, the talking about death and talking about grief and not understanding what to say and what not to say. So it's just a short book on hopefully helping people to navigate that without fear or without saying the wrong things that ends up hurting somebody. No, and I'm I'm happy you mentioned that because when someone is dealing with loss, it is good to reach out. But like as I've read your book, sometimes people say the wrong things or it might come off as being a little bit insensitive or just not the right timing. So I'm looking forward to reading your upcoming book, which comes out next month and it is called again. Um, what is it called? Talk, talk to me. I'm grieving. Talk to me. I'm grieving. I'm grieving. Yeah. So now I would like to ask, since you know I've mentioned reading your your previous book, Kevin's Choice, 
can you share who is Kevin and about his story? Sure. Um, Kevin was a typical little boy, my son. He was born in 1990 and he was fairly happy growing up, but I always noticed that there was kind of a dark cloud hanging over him once in a while that wasn't, you know, it wasn't every day, but sometimes he just seemed really down. Um, and then it started to worsen as he got to elementary school. And that's when I discovered that he suffered from depression and anxiety. And at that point, I did um, take him in for help to get help. But to go on about Kevin, um, Kevin was the kind of guy, everybody liked Kevin. Kevin was a very loyal friend. People mattered so much to him. In fact, sometimes too much because he wanted to make everyone like him. He wanted to fit in. And that sometimes was not a good idea with the people he chose to want to fit in with. Um, but he was just such a loving son and uh, kind of a walking encyclopedia on any topic that he knew. For example, cars. He could tell you about every single car out there and describe everything about him. I mean, I know more about cars than I ever thought I would just listening to him all these years. But um, when he hit high school, he did start drinking when he was 15 and smoking weed, which, you know, a lot of people do. I certainly did. And nothing became of it for me. I tried all the drugs of the 70s, you know, the LSD, the cocaine. I tried all that. And then I moved on with my life because I don't have that problem. I don't have the disease of substance use disorder. But Kevin, he really liked it. And when he got to be 17 and um, he was introduced to heroin and that was that was his downfall. Um, it took over his life and it just became the the main thing in his life. It, it caused him so many problems. Um, it, health problems, mental health problems, problems with the law, uh, in and out of jail. He went to prison once and his depression just got worse and worse and his anxiety. And he was also using meth at the same time, which affects you mentally a lot. It, he, the combination of the two, he would have psychotic episodes. It was so hard to watch. It was so hard to watch. And he told me many times that he would probably end up taking his own life. And, you know, of course, no mother wants to believe that. Um, but in the back of my mind, I always had it there that he might do it. And on August 11th, 2020, he did do it. I heard the, a shot coming from his bedroom and I knew immediately my life was just completely changed. And uh, my baby was gone. I, I lived for him. He was the love of my life. And so that's a little bit about him and me. And yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, I can see it's still, uh, you know, the pain, the pain is still there. Um, yeah. And there's something which when someone is grieving, people say these words, uh, they said it to me, uh, and I'm sure it's going to be repeated. 
people sometimes say time heals uh time heals all things just let it go um but when i was reading your book you you're kind of writing against that um why do you think that time doesn't heal well it's like when you get hurt physically um time does heal up your wound and you may have a scar as a reminder but with our emotional wounds it does get different it does get to the point where you can get through the day but when we're talking about a deep grief a deep loss like your spouse your child especially I think that's what I've read is that is the hardest type of loss to experience um it never really goes away I mean I'll miss him every day for the rest of my life I'll grieve him every day for the rest of my life. But that doesn't mean I'm not having fun. It doesn't mean I'm not enjoying my life. I have got to the point where I can enjoy my life and still, you know, deeply grieve my son. I usually do my grieving privately. You know, I don't always talk about him in front of other people because it makes them uncomfortable. But yeah, I am every day. I am devastated that I lost my my son and you know thank you for you know shedding light on that because I believe people have good intentions sometimes when they say that but it just absolutely they do yeah people have such great intentions when they're trying to say something and I've said things I mean we've all said those things right because we grew up hearing that that's what you say when someone has a loss you say you know you try to make them feel better by either justifying the loss, fixing them, talking them out of it, minimizing it. And those are just the things that we typically do because we're not comfortable. We don't know that the person really wants to talk about it. In most cases, they want their grief to be acknowledged and they especially want their person talked about and acknowledged. That is my favorite thing on earth to do is hear about Kevin or talk about Kevin because that's all I have left, you know, is the memories. Thank you for sharing. Um, Yeah. It's, it's not easy to understand. And especially when people are not giving, giving you a chance to express your grief and, you know, going back to your book, it's really eye opening. Uh, So I wanted to ask you, how does someone grieve when they've lost a child? I belong to a support group that is filled with parents who have lost a child to overdose. And then there are some suicides in that group as well. And it is the most difficult thing. I mean, there are certain things a lot of parents I know do. They want their child memorialized. So I have friends who have put a garden in their backyard specifically for their child and decorated it and grow these beautiful plants. Um, That's healing for them. Some people have a park bench dedicated to their child. Some people um, write a book. (laughs) Um, Not very many people do that, but a lot of people do. It was very healing for me. We just have to go through each day and feel what we're feeling but we find ways of, um, you know, keeping their memory alive. I think that helps a lot. And support group, 
I can't highly recommend that enough because going to a support group for the specific type of loss you've had, like if it was a spouse or a sibling or, you know, someone to cancer, you're going to be among people that get it, that really understand you. No one else can understand it because they haven't been in those shoes. They want to, they try to, but with other parents um, that have lost, I know exactly how they feel and they know how I feel. And it's a big comfort because you don't have to ex explain yourself. You just say a few words and they're just shaking their head. Yep. Yep. Me too. So what are some benefits that you saw from being part of a support group? Well, the first thing um, I actually joined the support group when I lost someone who was like a son to me, his name was Anthony. And I lost him five years before Kevin to an overdose. And so I already had these people in place in my life. When Kevin died, they are the ones that came over immediately to be there for me, to bring me, you know, meals and items that they thought would be helpful. Um, and it also gives you a place to go and just talk and listen. And to me, that's the most important part of it is just to go to a room with other people and be able to sit there or Zoom. We do one, we do it on Zoom also um, and talk to people that are in the same boat and empathize. I mean, we can empathize because we know how they feel. And I think um, it just, you know, for me personally, those are my close friends now is other moms that have been through what I've been through and we understand okay you're gonna you're having a bad day I'll I'll try and cheer you up not cheer you up but make you you know give you some comfort and then tomorrow that person's having a bad day and I can give them comfort so it's just it's just a really great way to be able to come alongside someone and say I know how you feel um I've been there too and I'm so sorry so thank you for sharing because a lot of people are not aware about su support groups, especially after mourning the loss and hearing you makes it clear that it's very helpful to have someone on your side. Yeah, there's a, a national support group called the friend. It's just for child loss. I'm not sure groups out there. If you, um, look it up online you you can find groups that are near you that can be supportive um let's let's go back and talk again about uh kevin when he was alive and when he was still uh with you uh you mentioned how he started using uh drugs and then heroin um around what age was it when he started he was 17 and he was actually using for three months before I even knew I did. I was so naive. I did not recognize the signs and there really weren't that many signs because I'd never see him immediately after he used when he was nodding out and everything. I wouldn't see that. So I, it came to a huge shock to me when he came to me and admitted that he'd been using and that he wanted to stop. And I was so naive at the time. I thought, okay, great. He'll go to rehab and that'll take care of the problem and we'll move on. I wish it worked that way. It just doesn't, you know. So would you say that rehab 
uh, it doesn't work, or maybe it works for some, not for everybody? It usually, I guess what I should clarify, what I mean is it usually you go more than once. You go more than once to rehab. And when I got there, that first family group, I thought, why have all these people been here twice or three times or four times? I didn't get it. It's like, didn't you pay attention? Didn't you do what they told you to do? But it's such, it's, it's not, it's a physiological thing as well as a physical thing, as well as a psychological thing. It's just so intense trying to stop using the one thing that makes you feel good, that makes you feel normal. Um, Cause that's what it did for him. At a certain point, you don't get high anymore. You are using so you can feel well, so you can feel normal, because if you don't use, you're going to be sick. And it's just a lot. It's just a, a spinning circle. And it's so hard to to get off of. But yeah, re drug treatment does work for a lot of people. 12 steps works for a lot of people. Um, some drug treatment centers will rip you off. You, It's so important to find a good one because you know, it's been in the news a lot lately. There's some that are focused on money, not helping people. And you wrote uh, in your book at some point how it's not just going to the rehab, but even after the rehab, there are times when the person, uh, what's the word, relapses when they go mm -hmm. back. And there can be a lot of feelings of discouragement. But as I'm reading your book, I see that you were there behind Kevin every step of the way uh how did you find the strength to always be at his side well the first couple of years it, it took me a while to get to that point the first couple of years like i said i didn't understand it i had to really educate myself but before i got it and knew what it was and knew how it affected him I, we fought all the time i we yelled and screamed at each other i'd kick him out and then let him back over and over. But when I finally got it and I realized that this is so much bigger than him and it is not a simple matter of just making a choice to stop, um, that's when I realized, okay, I have to accept that this is what my son is doing at this moment. And I just want to be there for him because he became his own worst enemy. He put himself down. He felt guilty. He felt so bad for what he was putting myself my mom and my sister through because my mom was still living then and um they helped me raise him anyhow he he started dating himself and you would hear it he would hear it from other places he'd go to jail he'd get arrested he had doctors tell him oh i shouldn't even have saved you you're just a junkie and you're gonna die <laughs> and they actually said that to him i was standing right there so it's like you lose your self-esteem, you lose your self-worth. And I wanted to be the person that was reminding him every single day that he's valuable and that he could do it and that we would get through it together and that I would not abandon him. So that's the opposite of tough love. And I, a lot of people think that tough love is the only way, but I don't, I don't believe that. In my situation, it was the worst thing I could have done if I chose that path. So I chose a different path. And and you've also shared in your book how there seemed to be a change when he went to prison. How, you know, there's a, a pre-prison uh, mm -hmm. portion and then there is that uh, post-prison uh, 
part of Kevin's story. Uh, can you share with the audience a bit about how that looked like from your point of view as his mother? Uh, yes. Um, he'd been in and out of jail, so he'd experienced being incarcerated for short periods of time, like up to six months. But this was a 16-month sentence. And um, it's so different in there. Everything is based on on race. You know, it depends on are you black, white, Hispanic, or other. And he, you know, they they make it seem like you have to join their side or affiliate with them. So he did. But there weren't a lot of white guys in prison. And he started hanging out with a different group of men. And they recognized right away that Kevin was naive, that he wanted to fit in, that he would be easy to manipulate. And they um, started giving him things to do, like go beat up. Um, Kevin had never beat anybody up in his life. And then they started giving him drugs for free. And they got him hooked on heroin back in prison. And that's why he was there. So it it just, uh, he had to do some things that just scarred him. He was so upset. And if he didn't do them, then he would be the one getting beat up. I showed up to visit every time. And there were occasions when I could tell he'd been beat up. Uh, he wouldn't talk about it very much to me, but it was obvious. So it just, it just really made him bitter. It made him paranoid. Um, it made him, it took away a lot of the kindness in his heart. You know, he just felt so bitter when he came out. He felt so bitter. Do you think that the prison systems can do more when it comes to, uh, especially helping the inmates to have a better life or to change their behavior? Is there anything being done to help them? Um. I think they can do so much more. I'm very familiar with California Department of Rehabilitation, um, Corrections and Rehabilitation, because I've known a lot of Kevin's friends. I have a friend who's been in there for 12 years, and he tells me everything that goes on in there. And um, there is an illusion that you can go to prison and get your life together. You can take classes, you can do this and better yourself. And there is, there is but it's limited. It's not offered to everyone. My friend who's been in there for 12 years just now got into a woodworking class that is going to help him when he gets out, have a career in um, carpentry. But, you know, for 12 years, he hasn't been doing anything to better himself, except on his own, you know, reading and this and that. But there's, it's a very uh, tough environment the other inmates and the guards, you know, it's, it's just a battle. Not everybody gets along in there. It can be very, very scary. If you don't know what you're doing, if you don't understand the rules of how to act in there, you can get yourself in big trouble. Luckily, Kevin did have friends that told him about what to expect and how to act, but it's all about respect. And if you look at somebody the wrong way, and you're disrespecting them and then you're in danger. So it's just a real tough place. And you made it very clear in your book and even in this interview, how there's a big difference between, you know, being in jail 
and then being in prison. But do you ever wonder if uh, maybe perhaps these these prisons, um, if they are, I'm trying to have the say the right words, um, not not really interested in seeing the inmates rehabilitate, improve? Do you think that sometimes they just can really care less? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think, yeah, I think it depends on all the people that work there. But as a whole, they make money. Prison systems make money from having inmates in there. And that, I don't get that, but that's what I've been hearing for years. And like a lot of other institutions, money is more important than people. Um, but, you know, there are good people in prison, too, helping. And there are classes that you can take. And there are support groups you can go to. So it's not all bad. And some people absolutely should be in there. But yes. people that are there for drug-related offenses that would never commit a crime if it weren't for drugs, those are the ones that suffer. And those are the majority of the people in a lot of our jails and prisons. And it's... You also mentioned earlier in this interview how even at some rehab centers they would you know rip you off and how sadly money is it's yeah. it, it, it corrupts people but I'm um, going back yeah. to Kevin after leaving the prison did you see a change right away in his character and his behavior and if so what was that like yes I saw a change on the drive home from prison. That's how fast I saw the change. He didn't speak to me all the way home. It was an hour's drive. He did not speak to me. He just stared out the window. And I'm like, Kevin, you're free. I mean, it's over. It's done. Let's listen to some music. Let's talk. And no, he just didn't want to talk. And um, since he got out, he just was a lot more quiet, a lot more angry, um, a lot more cynical. And he just seemed, I, uh, he withdrew a lot. He withdrew a lot. Um, he had new friends when he got out. He started hanging out with other people that he had heard of. I mean, you, you meet people in there and they say, oh, when you get out, check on this guy and this guy. And so he started hanging around with a lot of people that had been in prison too. And you know, it just was very uh, detrimental to him, in my opinion. Okay. So um, now, uh, you know, you you shared about his prison experience. You shared about his uh, his drugs. After leaving prison, was he still going to rehab, or was that already he was finished with that? How was that? Yeah. Oh, that just reminded me of a story. I don't know if I put this in the book. I don't think I did. He, we found a rehab that we thought was going to be the perfect one because the length of the stay was like four months. 
you need more than 30 days. You need more than 60 or 90 days. And they also had mental health care. And we were so excited. He was excited. He wanted to go in there because he came out addicted. He used the whole time he was in there. And everything was great. And we came home to pack his bags and come back. And they called me and they said, um, we can't take him because of his prison tattoos. Oh, my gosh. And so once again, something he did in there affected his life out here. But I think he only went to detox once he got out. There was only three years left of his life once he got out. Um, he went to detox several times, but he never had long-term sobriety after he got out of um, prison. I don't know if it's related, but he just didn't. And there's something that you, I think, I think it was in your book that I read this, or it could have been somewhere else, but I believe uh, someone had mentioned either to you or to, to whoever um, that suicide is selfish. And yes. I'm not sure. Was that in your book? Yes, it was. Oh, <laughs> that okay. was me. <laughs> and when you hear something like that being said, and you know, me as a reader, as I'm going through everything that Kevin has been doing, I'm seeing that this guy is really, really trying very hard to put his life on a better path. But it just seems that either in prison or in the uh, rehab centers, it's always uh, there's always something or someone, you know, putting an obstacle. Uh, how does one deal with that and or can can you deal with that well I, I guess it's it's really an individual thing I know with Kevin you know he he'd go six months without using and then he'd have a uh, he'd have a job well he only have one job in his whole life and then they hired a guy that used heroin those two took one look at each other and they knew because you recognize each other mm -hmm. um and then he started using again and i'm not putting the blame on other people kevin made his own choices he really did that's why i called the book kevin's choice but for him with every failure with every relapse with every arrest or every time he woke up in the hospital after an od or whatever he felt worse and worse about himself and he felt at some point that he wasn't worth getting better and that I would be better off without him um and that was his mindset when he finally reached the point where he thought I'm never going to be able to stop using drugs so instead of keeping trying I'm just going to end it here and let my mom get on with her life and that's basically what he's told me several times so you know, I, I forgot the question already, but I don't believe that suicide is selfish. I really don't. I think it takes a lot of courage to actually do that. There are instances where people do it because of a selfish reason. For example, someone here, a principal of school jumped off a building because the next day he was going to court for endangering a child in his school and he didn't want to deal with it. So he jumped off a roof, killed himself. Uh, most people do it because they are so hurt, so despondent, and they feel absolutely hopeless. They feel like it's their only answer. And 
they often feel like they are going to be doing the people in their life a favor by eliminating all the worry, the stress, the finances, everything their family and loved ones have put into them. That will all be over now. And they think my family will be better off without me. And that's not a selfish decision. It's sad. But yes, I, I hear where you're coming from. And for Kevin, although he had so many uh, people looking down on him, and like you you said earlier, how some doctors even called him, it's terrible, but how they even called him a junkie. Were there any role models or anyone that he could look up to and say, hey, this doctor or this teacher actually yes. cares about me? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of his doctors, um, it was his addiction specialist doctor who we went to to get on Suboxone. And that I don't, I'm sure most, I always think everybody knows what that is, but it, if not, it's what you take to prevent yourself from getting high if you do choose to use drugs. So it was kind of like a blocker. Anyhow, that doctor was so incredible. He took Kevin under his wing he would sit and talk to Kevin for a long time at every visit. He built Kevin up. He talked about things with him that he was interested in, like the cars and all that stuff. And Kevin just grew to love that man. And, um, you know, I still get choked up thinking about what a positive influence. And then another very positive influence was someone he actually met in jail. They both went their separate ways once they got their sentence, went, did their prison time, and then they came out. And this guy was very determined to get his life together. He immediately got a job, joined the gym, started doing all the right things. And he um, spent a lot of time with Kevin trying to influence him to do the same. And I really appreciate that guy a lot. And it's good that you're you're talking about this because I think listeners if there's someone in in their life, for listeners, if there's someone in your, in your life whom you see maybe despondent or down, uh, they also need support, you know, and we're talking about how grieving mothers need support. But if you see someone who can, you know, just need someone to chit-chat with, I think that's also, uh, I think as a society, we need to be friendly, be friendly, yeah. smile, reach out. It's okay. You know, maybe other people might say, oh, he's not popular. So what? You know, it's it, it's the right thing to do. And I'm glad to hear those stories where, you know, that doctor was able to just listen to Kevin. That's, I think, a beautiful example. And I'm glad yeah. you shared that. Yeah, really was. Kindness goes a long way. I just did a Facebook post right before I came on here. And being kind to one another, I mean, it can change your day. It can make you feel better. And unfortunately, I encourage Kevin constantly, but I'm his mom. So of course, he's going to think, well, yeah, of course you love me. Of course you think I'm wonderful. So when you give that gift to another person of just letting them know, hey, I like you or I want to know you better. You seem like a great person. And that's a gift that we give each other. We don't hear those kind things very often and I think it's so easy to be kind to another human being and we all need it we all need to feel appreciated and valued and um kind of to start wrapping things up uh what would you say to someone who is also a grieving mother and who is 
actually alone? What are maybe words of advice or words of wisdom that you can share to, to these people? I would say, I would say, first of all, try to find a support group of other moms. Uh, you can write me if you want to. I will help you find somebody if you, if you don't know where to go, but to allow yourself to feel the feelings. Don't try to push them away. Don't try to get through them. Just allow them to come. And I will, they do get better. I never say easier, but it does get better. It does get to the point where the deep ache is not as deep. And, you know, you will always have good days and bad days, but you will get to the point where you have more good days than bad days and you will be able to get through it. But sharing about it and finding people that care about you and want to be there for you is so valuable. And I care about all the moms out there. So I am open. I have a blog. They can write me. They can talk to me. You know, we just have to stick together. We really do. It's happening so much, especially with the fentanyl. Uh, can you, since you mentioned the fentanyl, uh, some people may believe that heroin, cocaine is really, you know, the the major problem. Uh, but what what is the the crisis? What does it look like in regards to fentanyl? Oh, uh, fentanyl is ten times worse than the heroin epidemic, in my opinion, because. Everything is fentanyl now. Kevin used fentanyl for the last year of his life. He couldn't even get heroin. All the dealers are using fentanyl because it gets you higher. It costs less money to, to make so you can sell it for less. So they'll buy more and they'll keep coming back. The problem is someone like Kevin knew what he was doing. He, you know, you can still accidentally overdose, but he kind of knew what he was doing. But then you have all these kids young adults who are unknowingly taking fentanyl because they put them in pills. They put them in pills, then they call them Oxycontin or they call it a Xanax or they call it a Norco or whatever. So you're getting a pill from a friend that you think is just gonna help you sleep that night or keep you up that night or whatever you're looking for. And you might die from that one pill. That's why one pill kills is one of the mottos out there. Um, it is so dangerous. If you don't know what you're taking, if it did, didn't get just prescribed to you, don't take it or test it. There's test strips, but fentanyl is deadly. It's so deadly. Um, I, yeah, it's really bad. Every single day I belong to groups every single day, multiple kids are dying. And I say kids, it's adults too, but in my mind, it's usually young adults and teenagers high school age kids. It's just, it's tragic. And are there any places where you can uh, direct the listeners so that they can educate themselves on this? Because you sound very well uh, educated on this, but for others, they might not have heard this information before. Yeah. Um, you could just do an internet search on fentanyl and you can pretty much hear everything I just shared. Um, there are Facebook groups. There are um, let's see, what's the name of that one that I always recommend? I can't remember the name, but it's on my website. It's uh, it, it educates parents on drugs and how to talk to your kids. It, it used to be called Partnership for Drug-Free America. It might still be called that. I'm sorry. I can't think of the name right now, but 
there are a lot of educational things online and you can find out all about it. And I suggest you do. And I really, I, I beg parents, talk to your kids when they're young and keep talking to them because it, it's devastating. You know, it's happened so easily and they don't think it's going to be them. You know how teenagers are. It's like, we're all invincible. We do crazy things when we're young adults, but somebody might do the same crazy thing and they won't make it. So it's just very scary. And just one, this one take can be it. Yeah, because they, they'll make a batch. I mean, it's a chemical and they get it from Mexico or China and they'll make a batch of pills and press all these pills together. But you don't know how much is in each pill. There's no way to know how much is in each pill. So your friend might take one and they might just get high. And then you take one out of the same batch and you could die. So it's crazy. Wow. Um, I'm learning so much, not just from reading your book, but also just from uh, this interview itself. It's just very um, eye-opening, uh, educational. And, you know, thank you for uh, having that openness to share your story. Yeah, I just want to help others avoid the pain that you know, a lot of us are in and help educate people. I mean, that's all I really have left to care about right now. And it's very much my pleasure to be able to do that. Uh, so next month will be the release of your book. Yes. Speak to me. I'm grieving. Talk to me. I'm grieving. Talk to me. I'm grieving. Uh, and so I'll be leaving uh, notes and links in the, in the show notes. So people can find your your website and also where they can uh, buy your book as well as Kevin's Choice which I strongly recommend to the audience thank you so much Ryan and thank you so much Barbara for sharing your time and sharing your journey for healing and grieving after loss thank you I really appreciate you Thank you.